Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 729 for the 5th of February, 2021. This week, digitizing old photos and negatives can deliver modest quality quickly or high quality slowly. There's no way to get fast, high quality files, but you do have some options. In short circuits, we'll look at three scanning methods you can choose from when you have both photographic prints and negatives, as well as consider which might be better in any given situation. The first question most technicians ask when you have a problem is, did you turn it off and then turn it back on again? Why do they do this? And why does it so often work? In spare parts, only on the website, ever wonder who invented the computer or the internet? The answer is invariably complex because in most cases it wasn't just one person. With vaccines slowly becoming available to protect against COVID, we are beginning to consider how we might keep surfaces clean in the future. And technology could help. And 20 years ago, American Express was trying to create an online service called AmexOL.net. It was one of many such services destined to die. In a few recent programs that have dealt with photo applications, I've used some old family photos. So if you have some old family photos lying around, you might be wondering what options you have to digitize them. Several years ago, I sent more than 3,000 35mm slides dating back to the 1950s to Scan Cafe. I had carefully organized the slides, but the files were returned in no discernible order so I had to repeat the process of organizing the images. Additionally, the images were all in lossy JPEG format. That wasn't a surprise. I knew that's what I'd get back, but it limited my ability to work with the images. Scan Cafe is located in Indianapolis, but much of the scanning is done in India, not Indianapolis. Scanning to TIFF format would have doubled the price, and that was out of my price range back then, for a considerably higher fee, Scan Cafe can perform all processing in Indianapolis instead of in India. That reduces the processing time from two months or more to approximately two weeks, but it greatly increases the cost. Despite some frustrations, I found Scan Cafe to be a good service, particularly for slides and prints. It's easy to examine photos and color transparencies, so you can select only the best images for scanning. Negatives aren't so easy, particularly considering my approach to photography. I spent a decade of my former life as a professional photographer, so I learned that more pictures are better. Most scanning services are set up to scan an entire roll of images, and then they'll allow the user to delete maybe 10 or 20% of them without charge. But I might have wanted only half a dozen images from a 36 exposure roll so I'd be paying for a lot of images that I wouldn't want, even if I could cull 10 to 20% of the scans. Those who had a more modest approach to photography may find that a service such as Scan Cafe will work for their negatives, 
My father-in-law's approach to photography was to use about one 12-exposure roll per year. If you want the easiest possible option, a service such as ScanCafe will be exactly right. But there are some do-it-yourself options. If you're willing to do the work yourself, you eliminate the dangers of sending priceless old negatives and prints to a distant processing site. You also have complete control of the process. You might use a flatbed scanner for prints. Some flatbed scanners have attachments for slides and negatives. Film scanners are available for color slides and film negatives, but these are usually limited to just 35mm film. It's also possible to set up a digital SLR camera with a macro lens and a device you can build or buy to hold the film. So let's look first at using a flatbed scanner for prints. If you have nothing but prints, and that of course is almost always going to be the case for antique photos, then scanning them is the only option. And you might think it'd be good to scan prints even if you have the negative. It is an option, and it's worth considering, even though scanning negatives or slides will always produce better results. Prints exist in three general categories, and the print type will have an effect on the results. Glossy prints will yield the best results, but glossy prints pick up fingerprints, and photo finishers often provided services that resisted fingerprints. Glossy prints, though, are the best choice for scanning. Matte finish prints aren't as crisp or as clear as glossy prints, but the finish was more resistant to fingerprints. The dynamic range of prints on matte paper is lower than that of prints on glossy paper, but you'll find the results to be generally acceptable. And then there are textured prints. They are the worst possible choice for scanning. Although they never show fingerprints, the texture on these prints will be visible in the scanned results, and of course the dynamic range of scanned images on this kind of paper will be substantially worse than what you can get from glossy prints. Although scanning prints is never the best option, the results may be adequate. I use ViewScan because it works with all scanners, and thus it provides a common interface no matter what method I'm using. But still, prints should generally be the last resort for several reasons. Any imperfections will be captured. Low-cost photo processors often return prints with dust spots. Scanning a clean negative will eliminate that problem. Prints are cropped. Commercial photo finishers always cropped in just a little bit from the edges of the negative to ensure that the automated process didn't have any blank areas on the prints. In most cases, that's not a problem, but it's better to start with the entire image. You'll find the color may be incorrect in prints. The automated color balance sometimes was fooled, and the result was prints with bad colors. Going back to the negative provides a second chance to get the color right. Detail will be better if you have a negative. Prints were made by shining light through the negative and focusing it on photographic paper. Each step of that process has a potential to degrade the resulting image just a little bit. The results will be even worse with matte finish or textured paper. And contrast suffers in print scans. Every photographic medium has a contrast range that's expressed as a D-max. It describes the range of brightness that the medium can reproduce. Color slide film has a relatively high D-max. Color negative film, a slightly lower D-max. And photographic paper, an even lower D-max. 
What this means in practice is that prints will have considerably less detail in bright areas and in dark areas than what was present in the film. Although film scans will be better, the process also takes a lot longer. So it's good to consider the pros and cons. If you have so many slides and negatives that scanning will take an inordinate amount of time or become so frustrating that you simply give up, scanning prints will be the better choice because at least you'll have images that you can share with the family. There's an old saying that applies here. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Sometimes good enough really is good enough. So don't rule out scanning prints. Just keep the shortcomings in mind. Some flatbed scanners can also handle color slides and film negatives with varying degrees of success. In general, a flatbed scanner is better for photographs, not film. I have what was a very expensive Epson scanner when I bought it, and Epson claims that it can be used to scan film and slides. It can, but there's a difference between scanning and scanning well. If you're looking for a scanner to handle just prints, you'll find adequate models for $1 to $200, some even under $100. Scanners that can do a decent job on slides and negatives in addition will cost you $1,000 or more. The problem with scanning film is that the scan area is so small that extreme resolution is required, and that means the scan will be slow, very slow, several minutes per image in most cases. So that brings us to film scanners that can be used for slides and negatives. A decent film scanner will cost three to $500, and it'll handle 35mm film and slides. Film scanners for larger formats are hard to find, and the cost will be well over $1,000. The Braun FS120 medium format film scanner, for example, comes in at about $2,300. I have a Plustech Optic Film 8200i SE film scanner. Today's cost is around $400. It can handle slides and negatives, but I prefer to use a digital camera when I have color transparencies to convert because it's so much faster. Scanning a slide or a negative takes several minutes, while performing the same task with a digital camera can be done in a few seconds. The quality of the film scans is excellent, but scanning even a dozen images from a 36 exposure roll takes the better part of an hour. I can achieve the same results in just a few minutes with a digital camera when I'm dealing with slides. The film scanner is definitely a better choice for quality when I'm dealing with color or monochrome negatives, though. And there's one other choice for dealing with slides, and maybe even with negatives. Slides are easy to digitize with a camera that has a lens that can focus closely, a high-quality light source, and something to hold the slide or film strip in place. Although many camera manufacturers make macro-focusing zoom lenses, these usually are not sufficient for this task. Instead, you'll need a true macro lens that's intended for flat-field photography. Canon makes 50 and 100 millimeter macro lenses, Nikon makes 60 and 105 millimeter macro lenses, and third-party manufacturers make macro lenses in similar lengths. My preference is for lenses in the 100 millimeter range. Regardless of which you choose, though, these lenses are not inexpensive. And you'll need something to hold the camera and the film. One possibility from Novoflex involves combining the wildly overpriced Novoflex small focusing rack 
at $500, with the NovoFlex slide copying device at $160. So before you even get started, you're in for $660, plus a macro lens if you don't have one. But it really does speed the process. Photographing slides is easier because they're positive images, meaning the colors are correct. Bright is bright, dark is dark. Negatives flip that. Bright is dark, dark is bright, colors are reversed, and color negatives have an orange cast. Applications such as Adobe Lightroom Classic have added controls to work with negatives. The process is fairly basic in that it simply involves inverting the tone curve so that the light parts of the negative are rendered dark and the dark parts are rendered light. You'll also have to deal with the orange cast. You'll find a lot of YouTube videos that show you how. We'll look at the primary scanning options you have when you have prints and negatives next in Short Circuits. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, we'll take a little deeper look at some of the options you have if you have both negatives and prints. So be sure to check out the TechBetter Worldwide website to see the sample images. There are three primary options for digitizing images when you have both prints and negatives. The two variables you have to consider are time and quality. Scanning prints is fast, but the quality is less than what you'd get with a good film scanner. A dedicated film scanner offers the best quality, but film scans can take more time. And of course, you have to buy the film scanner. I scanned a print from the 1980s, and I also scanned the negative in a dedicated film scanner and a flatbed scanner that has a film scan function. I imported the images into Lightroom Classic, and you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website the three images directly from the scanner with no modifications. The negative scan done on a flatbed scanner has colors that look to be approximately correct. The image is 4,409 pixels wide and 2,929 pixels tall for a total size of 22 megabytes. Now, the image looks a little bit soft to me. The scan from the film scanner has colors that are close, but there's a little bit of a greenish cast. That can be fixed later. The image is 2,528 pixels wide, 1,672 pixels tall, total size 9 megabytes. Now, here I allowed ViewScan to choose what it felt would be the optimal resolution. Normally, I set the resolution manually to create an image that's 3,352 pixels wide, 2,263 pixels tall, and that scan will have a size around 21 megabytes. And finally, the scan of the print on the flatbed scanner. The colors are slightly too warm. That reflects the way the print itself was made. 
I have been scanning prints at 800 samples per inch. That's definitely on the high side of what's needed, but I have a reason for doing that, and I'll get to that in a moment. The image is 4,824 pixels wide, 3,176 pixels tall, total size 28 megabytes. So I opened each of these images in Lightroom Classic. The flatbed film scan, I said, it's a bit soft. And although there is some detail, even in the whitest parts of the polar bear's white fur, values are approaching pure white. So the appearance of detail is lacking. This was one of eight images in the bracket that holds the film. Scanning time for the eight images was slightly less than an hour. So around seven minutes per image. The image from the film scanner I would rate as being overall a bit better. The film scanner handled details in the light areas and dark areas a bit better. Even with the lower resolution that ViewScan selected, this is going to be the easiest of the three images to work with. The scan time was about 90 seconds, but if I had set the scanner to the resolution I normally use, 3200 samples per inch, it would have been around 4 minutes. Scanning film is clearly the most time-consuming option, but it's also the one that yields the best quality. And finally, scanning the print on a flatbed scanner, the worst of the three options, obviously. The image is somewhat muddy, the contrast is too high. Also, if you check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a lot of white specks to the right of the bear. These white specks are the result of dust that the photo processor didn't remove from the negative when making the print. Neither of the film scans has these imperfections, so I typically set aside some time for cleaning the scan from a print. That's the main reason that I scan at 800 samples per inch. Scan time is about 20 seconds per print. So I've been using a hybrid process when I have both a print and the negative it was made from. When good enough really is good enough, I scan the prints. But if the print has significant imperfections, and when I believe the image has special importance to the family, I take the extra time to scan the negative. Have you turned it off and back on again? Have you ever wondered why that is almost always the first question a tech support person asks? The answer, of course, is because doing that does solve a lot of problems. But why does it work? Has anyone who owns one or more electronic devices not fixed a problem by turning it off, unplugging it or removing the batteries, or possibly unplugging it and removing the batteries, plugging it back in and then restarting it? This works because it clears the device's memory. That solves the problem when information in the computer's memory has been damaged. With millions of bits flying around inside these devices every second, we probably shouldn't be too surprised when one of those bits goes awry and causes the device to become unresponsive. But not every bit that goes awry causes problems. Supervisor functions in software and firmware watch for known problems, and they can usually resolve them without even bothering the user. You won't even know it happened. So if you've ever seen an alert about an unexpected error and muttered to yourself, well, are there expected errors? The answer is yes, there are. The system knows how to deal with most expected errors. Perhaps you've seen something like this. The screen on your Windows 10 computer goes blank for a moment, then returns to normal. That's an example of an expected error. 
The graphics driver has crashed, but Windows 10 knew what to do about it. It shut down the driver and restarted it. Back in the days of Windows 95, if that happened, you would have seen the blue screen of death, and you would have lost work, and you would have needed to restart the computer. That doesn't mean the blue screen of death no longer appears. It does. It just happens less. So before you call a support line for help when an electronic device seems to be malfunctioning, a good first aid step involves turning it off for a minute or so, and then turning it back on and trying again. You may not have to make that tech support call. And that's a plus. Spare Parts does not have to be shut down and restarted. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Ever wonder who invented the computer or the Internet? The answer is invariably complex, because in most cases it wasn't just one person. With vaccines slowly becoming available to protect against COVID, we are beginning to consider how we might keep surfaces clean in the future, and technology may help. And 20 years ago, American Express was trying to create an online service called AmexOL.net. It was one of many such services destined to die. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.